From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. Grab one of these open phone lines. 833-288-EWTN is how you reach us. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. At one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Ace McKay and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube and Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Thursday, Father Brian Milady, you're back home. Back home in 100-degree Portland, yes. Wow, uh, it's, it's only 85 here in Birmingham. I know. Well, it was starting to go down today to 93. <laughs> so. Oh, well, there you go. That's uh... in the 80s next week. So. <laughs> well, good for you. So, you're making me nervous. You want to talk about the government and the Catholic Church? Yes. Well, what I want to talk about is a theme I've I think mentioned several times in the last year, which has to do with the difference in which religious government takes place and secular government. We are part, in fact, of three different societies. Uh, by nature, we're a part of the family and the state. And then by grace, we're a part of the church. Now, terms like democracy, oligarchy, monarchy are perfectly fitting for things like the state, but they are not fitting for things like the church, and that includes democracy. Back in the 60s, when I was in college, oh so many years ago, um, it was customary, they had a we where I went to college, which was in Santa Barbara, they had a Center for Democratic Studies. And I remember they had a expert from Vatican II at the time give us a talk on the new idea of the church and its government. So this expert would put a triangle on the board and he'd say, we used to believe the church was a hierarchy-like God at the top, then the Pope, then the Cardinals, then the Bishops, then the, whatever, the laity, and then he just cross it all out and put God, people of God, like a big blob, where everybody's absolutely the same, and their opinion matters absolutely the same. When the famous preacher Bishop Sheehan 
Fulton Sheehan came to deal with this model, he'd say, well, people say today now that we believe in God, that we used to believe in God, this pyramid, and then just big blob, people of God, and we don't anymore believe in the pyramid, the way it's fashioned. That's true. But he says, what you have to do with the triangle, it's still a triangle and it's still a hierarchy, but you turn it upside down. So the foundation of the church is God, who serves the rest. The Pope is the servant of the servants of God. And they serve the bishops, and the bishops serve the clergy, and the clergy serve the laity. And the whole reason the church exists isn't to just be some kind of clerical hodgepodge with uh, people who are merely seeking to run the church. Well, it always is like a thoroughly nasty business corporation. But instead, it's a hierarchy of service. And that's certainly true. Now, we're coming up in our own church to the uh, synodality business. I think it, ha it needs to be stated again. Cardinal Ratzinger stated it when he was head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and he continued to state it as Pope, that synods obviously have no authority as such in the church because the reason is that they weren't instituted by Christ. In the church's case, it's neither a democracy nor an oligarchy nor a monarchy, but again, a hierarchy of service instituted by Christ. The Pope may impart some of the authority he has to various synods, either local or universal, to um, you know, help him govern the church. But as far as the authority is concerned, as far as the mandate to do so, that has to come directly from Christ. And as a result, synods are man-made institutions, which are merely, well, I'd say, you could say they were like another Vatican department, <laughs> which could easily not exist, or exist, depending on what the church needs, uh, in order to... Um, aid the Pope in the manner in which he governs the church. As we approach the Synod then, people have been uh, saying that it's like a democracy. And at least the German Synod, as you know, included not only clergy, but also laity. They were very um, much like what they called the... Um, movement that occurred around the time of the election of Pope Benedict in the United States of common ground. Somehow we have to find a common ground in our creed or in our doctrine. Well, first of all, that isn't determined by vote. We couldn't change it tomorrow. Churches like the Mormons believe in progressive revelation. We don't. The revelation occurred once and for all when the apostles received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And everything after that is merely a footnote on that revelation, on an attempt to plumb the thinking of the apostles when the Holy Spirit came upon them, because 
the church is founded on the apostles. That's why the church is, you know, one of the four characteristics in the creed is it's apostolic. So to say there's a common ground that's apart from the teaching of the hierarchy is simply not Catholic. So much so that the common ground I would maintain is determined by the Pope as an individual acting as head of the College of Bishops or as the bishops when they act together with the Pope to try to discover what our faith has always been. So it's very, very far from a democracy. Now, there are organs in the church that are much more democratic. My own order, the Dominican order, was the first one of the first orders to elect our superiors and to be able to change the constitutions on which the order was constituted by a progressive vote of three chapter meetings, which is nine years, basically. Some people believe that the Dominican constitutions were one of the origins for the American constitution because we have a monarchical element, the provincial or general. We have an oligarchical element, which used to be the privileged votes, people who had masters of sacred theology. doesn't mean much anymore. And then we have the uh, democracy part, which is the fact that we elect our superiors and they're not appointed to us from above. And unlike the Benedictus, when the abbot is elected, he's abbot for life. We don't have lifetime superiors or abbots. So as we're approaching this synod thing, we need to keep all these distinctions in mind. <laughs> but the most important one is that the church is not a pyramid that goes from top to bottom. It is a kind of triangle, but it begins at the bottom and goes at the top. And the whole purpose of having the church or having authority of the church and um, one's place in the church as far as governance is concerned is, is supposed to be only determined by the service which one gives in love to Christ's faithful. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for August from EWTN Publishing, Good Night Jesus. It's a children's bedtime story by Kate Sidner. It's illustrated by Anna Morelli. This delightful book helps children reflect on God's blessings in their lives. The captivating images convey the importance of faith and family, friends and fun, and a personal relationship with Jesus. Good Night, Jesus, a children's bedtime story, a new book from EWTN Publishing. 
It's available at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call today on Open Line Thursday. Um, Stephen is watching us on Facebook Live, and he wants to know, why do a lot of Protestants have a hard time becoming Catholic if our faith was established in the time of Christ? Well, that's precisely the thing that they deny. You know, the typical Protestant view of things, now, I'm not saying they all think this, but it's quite common, actually. And I think it actually had its origin in Luther, is that the church was fine when the early church, as described in the scriptures. But then when it became a part of the Roman Empire under the emperors, it was made impure. And, and it didn't particularly represent what Christ had instituted. And then for a thousand years it was impure. And then all of a sudden in the 16th century, once we started to read the scriptures in, again and be very strongly interested in the scriptures, we discovered that it needed to be reformed and returned to its pristine uh, purity. Well, how anybody could maintain that with the two thousand years of Christianity that went between it, I, I find very hard to understand myself. But remember, a lot of the Protestant Reformation was a political and, and financial movement as well as a religious one. There were certainly very sincere Protestants. But remember, Henry VIII, as one film about him said, well, you know, in heart, he's always been a Catholic. He just doesn't want people telling him what to do, whether it's Luther or the Pope. <laughs> he wants to do it himself because he wants to grant himself a divorce. He has, you know, um, sexual attraction that's so strong. And Anne Boleyn was very sly because she found this book that basically said that, um, you know, the state was more or less the head of the church and not the clergy. So uh, it's, that's precisely what they deny. They think that the thousand years in which the church was united to the state, sort of, which wasn't really the case. When you can kill archbishops on altars, you're not exactly united to the society you're in. Um, but they felt that had made the church to so totally corrupt and that it needed to be cleansed. Now, of course... People that lived at the time of the Reformation thought the church was corrupt. In fact, there's supposedly a famous meeting that occurred between Luther when he was still a canon, acted as a priest, and religious, and Cardinal Cajetan, who was the papal uh, legate for Saxony. And when Cajetan listened to Luther, he said, you know, everything you say about the corruption of the church is correct. But he says, what you want is a different church. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're not going to have that. You know, that, that's not an option. But Luther didn't look on it that way. And he managed to get enough of the political figures in northern Germany who especially disliked having to pay taxes to Rome. Things like Peter's Pence, wanting to keep the money themselves, who supported him 
that he could be preserved immune. And then uh, he was um, controversial enough so that what I believe it was the Diet of Augsburg that met with the emperor. And Luther was given a safe conduct and he actually did um, present his case, but then he left uh, and uh, took refuge in a castle for a year or so, two years or so. Uh, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. If you've got any question whatsoever about the Catholic faith, Father Brian Milady is at the ready, ready to answer your question. Jed writes in, why do certain people get more grace than others? For instance, the Virgin Mary and St. Paul. Well, that's interesting because it's kind of lost in the, the mysteries of God's love. Uh, Therese of remember, was uh, very enticed by this problem. And after thinking about it and thinking about it, she decided that as long as you were in the garden of God, it didn't matter if you were a big flower or a little flower because every flower was necessary to make the bouquet beautiful. And that's why she's called a little flower. That the important thing was to be in the grace of God and not worry about where your place was, so to speak. There is, in fact, a hierarchy in heaven. Dante wrote about it in the Celestial Rose, in the Paradise, in the Divine Comedy. But this hierarchical place is, again, not based on what would you say, ability or winning or anything like that, the principle of American Catholicism is love. So it's how much you love God that determines what your place in heaven will be like. Now, uh, why God loves some people more than others? He loves everyone sufficiently to die on the cross for them, which is a big, big deal, I'm sure you can imagine. But he has special plans for some people as opposed to others in his church. And since the church is a body, a mystical body, some of the parts of it are more necessary than the others, just as the heart's more necessary for our body to live than our finger or something like our fingernails or, or something like that. So what we need to do is worry about whether in fact we're in the grace of God um, you know, Joan of Arc was once asked this, if she could be certain she was in the state of grace. In her trial, she was, her judges asked her, because it was a trick question. Because said she answered, yes, they would have burned her as a heretic, because you can't with absolute certainty know that you're in the state of grace. And if she'd answered no, they would have said, well, then everything you do must be from an evil source. And Joan of Arc expressed the Christian's answer when we're asked, are we washing the blood of the Lamb? We can't say yes. We haven't died yet. But we can say with Joan of Arc, if I'm not in the state of grace, may God put me there. And if I am in the state of grace, may God keep me there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
833-288-3986. Matt writes in, is it true that Mary remained a virgin? In the Gospel of Matthew, it sounds like she had relations with Joseph after Jesus was born. Well, that's the famous until. And I must admit, the people who are Protestant converts are much more versed at this than I am. Because I, I never really thought anything else. But the word, uh, until he didn't have relations with her, until she brought forth her child, I think is the way it's stated in Matthew. The until there has a certain nuance that talks about what happened before, but not what happened after in, he, in Hebrew or Aramaic. So a lot of that has to do with the difficulties of translating what the idea is in the gospel in the original language to our own language. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Maria is in New Orleans, Louisiana. She's listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, thank you, Father, for taking my call. Um, my question is, I'm 54, and I've been through a lot of things in my life, an individual journey, which everyone has, and it's our passageway, into the transition of our real home. And knowing that from Sicilian heritage, a father who came in 1957 from Sicily to the New Orleans area, I feel like I'm starting to see what I used to just think were cracks. Not in my face, but in the entity. You mean in and the I church? A, yes. Oh. Well. And I, and, yeah. And I, I think as a layperson, the, the, the question is, and I know it's trust in God and go forward, but when do I start to discern where when I'm having a conversation with someone, and it could be a Muslim man reaching out after I say something, and then he hugs me and cries, and then I'm talking to what's supposed to be a Catholic brother and sister and the President of the United States, prime example. What do I do with that? Well, the first thing you do with it is you remember that it's the Church of Apostles and Sinners. No one ever said that everybody in the church was good. What they said was, or we've always thought, is that the church has all the means to go to heaven for anyone who wants to make use of them. And even members of the hierarchy, after all, the first great heretic was Nestorius. And Nestorius, as you know, was the patriarch of Constantinople. So, in other words, even the hierarchical members of the church who have high office might not live what their office proclaims. So I always tell the story, the people who've been on this network for a while probably know it by heart at this point, about Cardinal Consalvi who lived around the time of Napoleon. And uh, he was asked to help negotiate the Concordat with France so uh, they could sign their peace to the Vatican and our religion could be practiced legally again. And when Cardinal Consalvi, who was actually a lawyer, he was a layman or a deacon, a cardinal deacon, one of the last of the 
people who wasn't a priest, who was a cardinal, when he showed up to the French court, um, Napoleon looked at him and said, you know, even though I'm signing this peace, I can destroy the church when I want to. And Cardinal Consalvi said, well, the bishops and priests haven't been able to do it in 1,800 years. You don't stand a chance. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family, Prince of Peace Radio in Palm City and Stewart, Florida, is celebrating their 16th year with EWTN. Happy Sweet 16th to Hans Krug and his team at WJPP from all of us here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-3986. Next up is Christine. She is in Chicago listening on the EWTN app today. Christine, you're on with Father Milady. Yes, why did Pope Paul VI do away with a lot of these saints' feast days, like St. Barbara, there's history about how she was martyred. And then an, another one that I loved when I was a little girl, St. Catherine of Marcia, who was a Dominican nun who helped out with the bubonic plague. That feast used to be April 30th. And then I looked it up on Alexa. It's now April 29th. Uh, and there's a lot of other feasts that he did away with I think we should honor those martyrs and, and people who did great things for God. Uh, you there? I'm here. Uh, well, obviously, they had a reform of the calendar in Vatican II. And what they wanted to do was take anything out of the calendar that they thought might be considered the least bit mythological because many people were considered saints or there were legends about them before they had a canonization process. And the canonization process didn't occur or begin until Thomas Becket in the Middle Ages. So, for example, St. Ursula, the 10,000 virgins that basically toured the Mediterranean and uh, wound up, I forget, in Germany somewhere when the Huns were attacking the city and the Huns killed them all. Uh, that was considered, the 10,000 virgins was considered to be just a bit much. And she was an English princess. Uh, and then the Pope, let's see, the Pope, her fiancé and the Pope decided to join her on her pilgrimage, wherever that was too. Now, the, interestingly enough, Paul VI, uh, Paul, uh, John Paul II, did put some of those saints back in like Catherine of Alexandria, whom tradition tells us debated, I think, 500 philosophers in Alexandria and won on the nature of Christianity because she was the patron saint of liberal arts. And so, yes, people, their sensibilities were very much attacked by the 
sort of reform of the calendar that took gray areas and didn't uh, uh, make sufficient um, provision for the sensibilities of the faithful. Now, I think St. Catherine, I think you mean Siena, because I'm a Dominican, and I never heard of the other person. But Catherine of Siena's feast was moved to August 29th. Uh, I forget, I don't remember why. But we had very strange movements of the calendar. For example, St. Dominic died on Transfiguration, August the 6th. So they couldn't put his feast that day. So they moved it a day before, which was, they couldn't move it a day before either because in those days it was, that was a big feast. It was Our Lady of the Snows of the dedication of St. Mary Majors. So they put it on August 4th. In Vatican II they thought, well, let's get, try and get closer to the 6th. So they moved it from the 4th after hundreds of years. I made my profession on that day. And they moved it to the 7th. Well, we celebrate on the 7th for two days, two years, and then the founder of the Theatines, or the general, said, please don't do that, that's our feast day. So they couldn't move it back to the 4th because John Bieni had been bumped, bumping St. Dominic because he obviously came later and his feast was finally transferred to the 4th. So they moved to the 8th, two days to the other side of August 6th and mess up the whole of our basic liturgical history. Um, they, they tried to, their intentions were good, but their method of going about it was just horrendously inadequate. So the real reason was some were considered to be saints that had been added for various reasons at certain times in the history of the church, whereas that didn't seem to speak to the modern world or because they felt that there was insufficient insufficient um, historical evidence for their existence and they didn't want to have mythological people on the calendar like as I say St. Ursula and the 10,000 virgins 833-288 EWTN is our toll free number 833-288-3986 Mary is in Granite City, Illinois, listening on Covenant Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I, I am confused about um, mortal sin at death, because from what I have uh, been told, if you die with mortal sin on your soul, you go straight to hell. But in St. Faustina's diary, she, you know... It has in there where Jesus comes to the soul, you know, three or four times and tries to get it to um, repent and choose him. So I'm a little confused on that. Could you please explain that? Uh, uh, well, there's lots of different explanations for that. The first is that it, obviously you can't repent once you're dead. Your pilgrimage ends. So I can't say that I've read St. Faustina's diary on this, but it's not a norm for Catholic doctrine, first of all. Secondly, it may, I think it has a benign interpretation. It assumes the person is still alive somehow, but the death has not yet totally occurred. 
Thirdly, yes, if you die with a state of mortal sin in your soul, unrepentant, then you go to hell. And no, but no one knows if anyone's actually in hell except for the demons. The demons are certainly there. But as far as we're concerned, no one knows about us. Now, um, I, again, I can't speak to St. Faustina's interpretation of this, but her diaries certainly were subjected to ecclesiastical scrutiny, and they did determine that there was nothing heretical in her diaries. So she must have meant, while the soul is still connected to the body, even if the connection isn't evident at the time. God bless you, Mary. We appreciate the phone call. We've got plenty of time for your calls and some wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Rick said, I got married in the Presbyterian Church but was raised Catholic. Am I in mortal sin because I am no longer Catholic? Well, you have to be baptized the Catholic, not just raised the Catholic. If you were baptized the Catholic and you're married outside the church, then you're in the state of mortal sin until the marriage is resolved by the church. And that's to say that an annulment is granted, not a divorce. We, we don't believe in divorce. So, yes, and of course... The fact that you fell away from the church would be a sin also. God bless you, Rick. So really, and recourse would be just to probably the best first step would be to contact his local pastor. huh? If he wishes to return, yes. yes very absolutely. good. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 Paula wants to know, how do you know if God is speaking to you or if it is just your own thoughts? How can you discern when the Holy Spirit is speaking? Well, the first um, bottom line is if it's speaking to you and telling you to do anything that's contrary to Catholic teaching, Catholic doctrine, the Holy Spirit can't do that. In fact, I was on a program with Father Mitch you know, EWTN, uh, the nighttime live show, where we were discussing something I'd written in a book, and I said, well, one author maintains that you never really know if you're doing something evil until you discern it with the rules for discernment of spirits and the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And, of course, Father Mitch, who's a Jesuit, disdainfully looked at me in public and said, Father Brian, the Holy Spirit can inspire you to do something contrary to church teaching. <laughs> and I said, I thought that was the case, but not being a Jesuit, I really don't know. But um, the first, that's the bottom line. The second thing is you have to test the spirits. If it's something that doesn't involve morals, you know, absolutes, then you have to, well, they used to suggest that you write down the positive things and the negative things. Remember, that's more or less what St. Ignatius did. Because remember, he was recuperating from a wound in battle. And when he read a, a secular book, he felt pleased at the moment, but then later felt revulsion. 
when he read the lives of the saints, he wasn't particularly drawn to them, but spent a lot of uh, sweetness and thought and love afterwards. So he concluded from this that that was the more important thing, and it was something that he should actually participate in. So you have to test the spirits and see. And I, I know of some people who joined sisters' communities who had revulsion for the whole life as far as religion was concerned, but liked teaching. That, that's a sign you shouldn't be there. <laughs> All right. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Lewis is in Birmingham, Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Lewis, you are on with Father Milady. Well, thank you very much for taking my phone call. My question is, I, I'm Catholic. My wife is, is Baptist. Um and we attend both a Baptist church and a Catholic uh, Catholic church as well, uh, this, every every Sunday. But my question, my question primarily has to do with uh, communion. Is it acceptable for me as a Catholic to partake of the Baptist communion? Absolutely not. And you really shouldn't go either, because if you go. Just the fact that you stand up in public, I mean, I'm sure you love your wife and all that's fine, but if you go, you're saying, I believe in this. Well, if you believe in it, then you can't be a Catholic because we, we don't believe the same things. And when it comes to communion, you know, they don't believe in the sacrifice of the Mass or in communion the way we do. For us, communion is God. It's not just a nice thing you do like at the Last Supper. It's something that's very, very serious for us. That's why we're having a year where we try to have a Eucharistic revival now. Because people have recognized that some people, they just, for no fault of their own, they don't see what we believe about communion. And these are Catholics who come to Mass on Sunday. I think only 30% of Catholics still believe in transubstantiation, which is shocking when you think about it. Why would you want to go to a church where you don't believe what they teach? God bless you, Lewis. Thank you so much for the phone call. We will keep you in our prayers and your wife as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Jason uh, has a point of confusion he hopes you can clear up. He <laughs> says, I thought Jesus and the Father were equal. So why does it say in John chapter 14, you heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Yeah, that's a famous objection. It's a, it was very connected to the uh, Arian heresy. Uh, the greatness there is not a greatness in being or in time or in intelligence or in anything. It's the fact that the Father is the origin of the Son. Because remember, the only distinction in the persons of the Trinity is the relationship of origin within the Godhead. So the Father is ungenerated, the Son is generated. But equal, equally, God. The 
Father and the Son are the source of the generation of the Holy Spirit, but equally God. So it's a relation of origin that distinguishes the persons. And that's it. So um, if you're thinking about his human nature, of course, then as man, it would be the fact that one is God and one is, is his human nature. But if you're talking about the Trinity and his divine character, the only greatness there is a relation of origin. Not, uh, or, uh, that's why we say in the Creed, he's equally adored and glorified. Uh, Claire writes in, my 14-year-old son asked me why some masses, like weddings, quinceañeras, uh, when celebrated on a Saturday, do not count as a Sunday Mass. Well, normally things don't count as a Sunday Mass until the Sabbath has actually begun. And the Jewish Sabbath begins with dusk. So it has to be close to dusk on Saturday for our Sabbath, an imitation of the Jewish Sabbath, which of course begins on Friday, actually, evening, to um, occur. But, uh, yeah, that's the reason. Um, it probably is what's closer to um, the uh, Sunday. Um, I mean, if it wasn't, why not just say, well, what you do on Saturday, Friday night, that constitutes your obligation. That's not the point. You have to think about it. <laughs> you know, God gave us a brain to think with on this. Uh, you know, the Sabbath begins, if it's anticipated, at dusk the night before. And so sometime after 3 or 4 o'clock, that's when we begin to have Sunday Masses, but not before that. The Wisdom of Father Benedict Rochelle, Saturday mornings at 1 a.m. Eastern Time from the EWTN Archives. The Timeless Wisdom of Father Benedict blesses our listeners every single week. Check it out this week. The Wisdom of Father Groeschel, Saturday morning, 1 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. Emma wants to know what the difference is between purgatory and limbo. Oh, very much. Uh, a person in purgatory knows they're destined for heaven. Uh, a person, uh, they've already been judged worthy of heaven. The person in limbo, um, they uh, don't go to any place exactly. Uh, they can't. They don't go to heaven, but they don't suffer in hell. So that that's the difference. Uh, Nick is in Detroit, Michigan. He's listening on Ave Maria Radio today. Nick, you're on with Father Milady. Hey, Father. So Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. And he asked God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he ask that? <laughs> well, let's see. Have you got about 30 minutes? Um, <laughs> that's an extremely important statement in the scripture. First of all, because you got to remember it's a quotation from a psalm. And the psalm has to do with the suffering servant the innocent psalmist excuses excruciating agony, but it's stated directly in the psalm that that's external suffering, you know, shedding blood, etc., but not an internal desertion. The psalmist says he has not turned his face from him. 
Now, how could Jesus be forsaken? Well, he could cease being God. No, he can't do that. He could cease being second person of the Trinity. Can't do that. Could cease um, having uh, beatific knowledge, and, you know, while on earth. Well, he can't cease doing that. Christ doesn't have faith on the cross. He has vision. He could sin, but that would militate against his mission, which is perfect obedience. So the only way Jesus can be forsaken or deserted on the cross is externally. God turned him over and allowed him to experience the will of his enemies. And uh, we celebrate, therefore, the fact that the, even though our Lord, no one suffered like our Lord did, which is what the psalmist is reflecting, that Christ in no sense vacillates in his perfect obedience. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Wayne would like to know what is the Catholic view of salvation, and what role does free will play in our salvation? Well, the Catholic view of salvation is going to heaven, <laughs> obviously. That's everybody's view of salvation, I think. And, uh, but some people think we're predestined for it. Like, we don't, it doesn't matter what we do, we'll be saved. Um, I've been asked sometimes by evangelicals, uh, are you washing the blood of the Lamb? Are you saved? Well, I can't say yes yet because I haven't died. I could always fall away. What will, part does our will play in the thing? Well, it plays the same part the will does in all of our actions. It's by the will that we are motivated to move toward heaven and toward salvation. Now, of course, with babies, that's another story because they don't make acts of will until they reach at least, well, what's usually called the age of discretion or the age of reason, which would be about six or seven. It varies depending on the how precocious the child is. But once we are able to use our will, it's by our will that we move ourselves toward virtuous life. And so we have to participate. Now, God's, uh, we don't merit our justification by our will. That's given to us as a gift. But once we receive justification, grace, then that has a whole different uh, psychology in us so that then we know that heaven's our final destination and we have to participate in willing it. And that's true of any human being once they realize that they have a treasure, something very important. So uh, God's participation might be huge and ours tiny but it's still ours. And it's still our variation on the theme. That's why in my house there are many mansions. It's also why uh, it, you can't just sit on your hands and, and claim that you're going to go to heaven. You have to motivate yourself to be a part of it too. 
And we often say, therefore, at least in following St. Thomas, that there are two that participate in every meritorious act of salvation. There's God, whose participation is like 99.9%, but then there's ours from our free will, motivated by God and grace, which is the tiny 1%, 0.1%. But it's still ours, and it's still us personally doing it. And Father, we had a caller who called in wanting a follow-up to the question on uh, limbo and purgatory, wanting to know who goes to limbo. Well, that's uh, the present tradition of the church, though it's somewhat questioned today, is the primary people that go to limbo are you kind of made rational acts. Because once you do that, you're either destined for heaven or hell. So therefore, it would be the children who are not baptized. Before Christ came, people were waiting for the gates of heaven to open. So all the saints of the Old Testament, and there were a number, if you want to read them, read Hebrews 11, uh, I think it's 5. And um, they're the just, the limbo of the just. They're waiting for the Messiah, but the Messiah hasn't died on the cross yet. When he does die, then he knocks down the gates of limbo and takes all those people with him. So they would not be there. The limbo of the just basically would be over, but not the limbo of the children. And my apologies to Stacy in Colorado and Mary in Maryland, but we are flat out of time. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Ace McKay, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We'll be back at it again tomorrow. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, will be in the house for Open Line Friday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless. God bless.